This is FaithCast, weekly messages from Victory Faith in Spokane, Washington. To stay connected with Victory Faith, visit victoryfaith.org where you can submit prayer requests and praise reports, sign up to receive weekly email updates, give online, and much, much more. Consider joining us for our live stream online Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. at victoryfaith.org slash live. Now, on to the message. Awesome. Hey, good morning. Man, I love church and I uh, love what God is doing in this season. I uh, just want to greet all of you who are in the room. So good to be together. Those who are with us online as well. We're just, we're thankful to be the church. And you know, the Bible says that as we draw near to God, God draws near to us. And I think you can feel that whether you're in the room, whether you're online, you can feel that this morning. God is, he is always doing something fresh. He's always doing something something fresh he wants to speak to our hearts. If, if, we're, if we're in tune with that, uh, we'll be able to experience God in a fresh and a new way. And I trust that even this morning in the presence of the Lord, Vasily was leading us strong this morning. Uh, it was so powerful. And um, it's just so good for us to... Ev- Every time we gather, whether we're gathered together, whether we are gathered together as a family, whether it is just you and Jesus in the private place, just, you know, worshiping, that there's always opportunity for fresh encounter. There's always opportunity for us to see God more clearly and in a greater, more powerful way. And, and that's, the, that, that's the journey of faith for us, right? Is that we continue to pursue him and con- he keeps on getting better. Like he's as good as he ever will be, but as we pursue, him, our understanding of him, he keeps getting better to us. Amen. So we are going to, uh, this morning, jump into part three in our First John uh, series, the Light of Life series. If you were not here last week to hear Pastor Joe's message, I want to encourage you to get online and check that out. It was a strong word. It was a powerful word. And so we're going to jump into part three this morning. As we do, there's going to be uh, a little screen that's going to come up behind us. And I want you to check this out. Like, we are all very familiar with branding and with logos, right? And up on this screen here... I'm sure probably everybody in the room and everybody online, instantly you can look at these logos and you can look at these different brands that are up here and and you identify with them. And the reason you identify with them is because we're familiar with them. We understand the product or we understand what they represent. You might like some of them, you might not like some of them, but for all of us, we don't need words. We just, one little image gives us this understanding of what's here. If you have small children, you understand the golden arches and they've produced a lot of grief in your life because if you're road tripping and you pass by the golden arches and your kids see that, I mean, there begins to be a tug of war in the car because they want to go to McDonald's, right? Every single one of these things invokes some type of desire in us, some type of memory. Like, I can't look at Pepsi without thinking about the 80s and Michael Jackson doing that commercial where his hair caught fire. If you're too young for it, Google it. It's fascinating. You will see him literally on fire, right? Even putting this up here, I thought, I'm not sure I really want to do this because most of the women in the room, you're just looking at the target and you're thinking about shopping, right? Some of you are, are thinking about the Batman movie that you haven't seen, and so now you want to go watch Batman, or you have seen Batman, and now you're just, you're thinking about that. I mean, we've got all these things. Somebody came in here not worrying about finances till you saw, saw Shell, and then your mind fires, and it goes, but the price of gas, 
and, and the cost of living and all these things are going up. Come on, one little image that we're familiar with. This is what John is doing in his gospel. He's saying, listen, there are characteristics that show the world that we are children of God, that show the world that we are disciples, that show the world that we are those who walk in the light. They ought to be able to look at you and I as disciples and see certain key attributes and go, they are different. They live different. I know, I know who those people are. So we're going to walk through chapter three this morning, and we're going to look at two of those distinctives. I read a fascinating book uh, a couple years ago talking about people outside of the church and their perception of church people or their perception of Christians. And one of the things uniformly, one of the highest things that people that are not churched say about Christians is they say that we are hypocritical. Their view of us is that we talk a good talk, but we don't walk a good walk. These are people that don't know Jesus, but they hear us talk about him, but they look at our lives and they say, but I see hypocrisy in the way you treat your wife. I see hypocrisy in what you watch. I see hypocrisy. That's their view of us. And this is the first thing that John in chapter three begins to address is this idea of making a claim and then not backing it up in action. So pick it up, 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And the reason that the world does not know us is it does not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be made like him. Come on. For we shall see him as he is. Therefore, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And now he begins to dive in. Everyone who sins breaks the law, breaks God's law, breaks God's moral law. In fact, sin is lawlessness against God's ways. But you know that he appeared, Jesus, so that he might take away our sins. The problem has always been sin. We talked a couple weeks ago about that. And Jesus comes to remedy the problem that has plagued all of humanity. He comes to take away sin. And in him, Jesus, there is no sin. Now pick it up. Look at verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him nor known him. Now, these are hard words, hard words to understand. And if we're not careful, we will take them to mean something that he's not saying. He is not saying that as a Christ follower, that you will live sinless. We are to aim for perfection. We are to strive for that. We are to deal with sin. But he is not saying that while we are in the earth that we were ever gonna fully reach this place of sinlessness. That's not what he's saying. If you go back and you look at the context, you look at the original language, the best interpretation here is in brackets and we'll go back and read it. This is how it reads in the message, but it's very accurate. No one who lives in him makes a practice of sin. No one who makes a practice of sin has either seen him nor known him. Let's continue. Dear children, do not anyone, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right, he is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful, 
tell me what you really think is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning or has been practicing sin from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And this, this is, this is the, the crux of it all. That sin has tainted us. Sin has disrupted things. But Jesus came to destroy the work of sin. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. The wages of sin is death. Jesus came to deal with the, the sting of death, the, the, the shame and the condemnation and, and all of the destruction in our relationships and in our own identity and in our relationship with God, everything that's been screwed up and messed up because of the death sting of sin, Jesus came to destroy. Where sin abounds, the Bible says, grace abounds all the more. It abounds all the more. Heap up as much sin as you can and grace triumphs over sin every single time. And that is the good news. There is bad news before there is good news. And the good news is Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Verse nine, no one who is born of God will continue to sin or make a practice of sin because God's seed or God's life, God's DNA is in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. Or the message reads it like this. It's not in the nature of the God born to practice or to parade sin. Verse 10, this is how we know. This is how we know. John over 32 times uses phrases like this. This is how we know in, 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 his, in his little letter, his little short letter, 32 times, this is how we know. This is the evidence who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. This is how we know. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and their sister. He's saying those who, who are born of God, those who know him, those who have seen him, will not continue to practice sin, will not live habitually, consistently in the way that they once used to live. We all understand practice. Anything you want to get good at, you practice. I remember about 10 years ago, my father-in-law prepping me for my very first archery hunt for elk. And I remember him, him telling me how I needed to practice. And I was shooting, I was practicing 100 arrows a day. I was practicing at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 yards. I'm practicing holding for 30 seconds, holding for a minute, holding for two minutes, practice on one knee, practice bending around a bush, practice, 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 practice. Why? Because whatever we practice, we get better at. Practice takes time. Practice takes energy. Practice takes commitment. Practice takes improvement and coaching. And eventually you get so good at something that you can do it without even thinking. Like driving. When you started driving, you had to think about it, but now you jump in your car and you don't think about it. And sometimes other people reap the consequence of you not thinking about your driving. Do not practice sin. You used to do that. You got so good at it. You got so good at thinking a certain way, acting a certain way, living a certain way. What he's saying is he's saying, if you are born of God, you don't live the habitual lifestyle that you once lived. It's not in the nature of the God born to practice and parade sin. First Corinthians says this about the old way we used to live. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, don't be swindling, will inherit the kingdom of God. This is not an exhaustive list, my friends. This is just a for instance. This is not bookended. This is just off the top of my mind. Here's a whole bunch of habitual patterns and sin things just to kind of equal it out for everybody out there. You used to live in adultery and you used to do that no longer. You used to be greedy. You cannot follow Christ and live a habitually greedy life. You cannot follow Christ and continue to be a drunkard and continue to be a slanderer and continue to be a gossip. He levels the playing field. If you want to follow Christ, you have to die to the old life and live in a new life. And he's talking to a group of people who want both ends. I want to have Jesus and I want to live the way I want to live. And he's saying the children of God don't do that. When the seed of God comes inside of you, something changes. First Corinthians goes on. And this is what some of you were, past tense, but you were washed by Jesus, by the blood of Christ. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. That is what you were. And what John is saying is he's saying, don't live like you were. Don't live like you used to live. Take it back. See what great love the father has lavished on us. Verse one, that we would be called the children of God. If you have said yes to Christ, you are a child of God. You have been born of God. You have a new nature. Your sin nature has been crucified with Christ and you have inside of you God's nature and God's spirit and you have God's righteousness and you've been made clean and you have been made whole and you are now not what you once were. You have been set free from that and John is saying, therefore live according to that. Jesus came to deal with the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And he took that penalty in his body as he was crucified brutally on the cross. He took the penalty that we deserved for sin in our lives. But he didn't just deal with sin's penalty. He, deal, he dealt with sin's power. And what people fail to realize as Christians is that the power of sin has been brutally destroyed by the power of Jesus. Before Christ, Galatians 3.22 in the NLT, the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. And we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. We are all prisoners of sin. We were all locked up in a cage that we couldn't get out of. We couldn't stop sin's pattern. We couldn't stop acting and thinking and doing and being selfish and immoral and perverted. We couldn't stop it. Sin was our dictator. Sin was our, our rule master. Sin had us locked up and imprisoned and we couldn't any one of us save ourselves. And Jesus comes and he unlocks the prison and he opens the doors and he says, not only can you be forgiven, but you can actually now live free from the power of sin in your life. And that is worth more than a little golf smattering clap this morning. And you might be clapping in your spirit and that's okay, but I hope you're with me. This is the hope we have. We are the children of God. I am not what I once was. 
and I might stumble. And John said a couple weeks ago, when you stumble, you have an advocate with the Father. Repent and turn from your sin. But listen, I don't live in the trenches of how I used to live if I am a child of God. Romans 6, in the same way, Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, here comes the imperative. Here comes the command. Here comes the instruction. And he tells us to do this because we can. Because we can. Check it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its evil desires. Don't. Why? Because you you don't have to. Why? Because there's a power inside of you called grace that has triumphed over sin. Stop acting like that. Why? Because you have power to do so. And that might be setting someone free. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm locked up. I'm in a prison. I can't get free. If you're a child of God, you are not in a prison. The prison has been opened. And there's a power inside of you by which we resist. Do not offer the part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Check it, for sin shall no longer, it once was, but it will no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the gospel. This is amazing. This is the free. Are, are you living in the freedom as a child of God? Are you living in the freedom? Have you broken sin's patterns and sin's habits? If, if very little has changed, but there is confession, but behavior does not line up with it, it may be that we have intellectually connected with God, but we are not yet born again. You can know about being born again, but when you become born of God, something radically changes inside of you. That's what he's saying. And it becomes evident to the whole world. Our second point, number two, if you're taking notes. 1 John 3, verse 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should, here it is, love one another. Here's the marker, love, a God love. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Don't be like him. That's what he's saying. Don't be a murderer. Okay. And why did Cain murder Abel? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then he says, don't be surprised my brothers and sisters if the world hates you. Listen, if you live free like we just talked about, if you stop practicing sin, the world around you that is not interested in Jesus, it will despise you and it will hate you because your righteousness provokes something inside of them. You make me feel worse about myself is what people say. And that's not on me, that is on you. When we have a different voice and we live by a different standard and we have a different morality and we speak about that and we talk about it and we live it, whether in school, whether in the workplace, there are many people that will hate us because of our stand. And he's like, don't be surprised at this as you're walking like that. If you want everybody to like you, then just, then just be lukewarm and compromise all the time. We all should look in our lives and go, where are my haters? Where are my haters? Where are my haters that, that 
evidence the fact that I am living a Christ-filled life enough that it provokes the people around me that don't have him. We know, here it is, we know that we've passed from death to life. How? How do we know? What is the evidence? What's the logo? What's the mark? What's the distinctive? That we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. This is John the beloved, guys. Head on the chest of Jesus. The one I always thought was kind of the, the light version of a Christian compared to Peter. This guy is a beast. This guy heard the heartbeat of the physical son of God. And this guy comes out swinging. Don't live in sin any longer. And then he's like, but walk in love. Why? Because there's this weird funky thing that happens if we don't learn to love people, but we walk in righteousness, we can become some of the the most mean-spirited people on the planet that just judge everybody else around us. Guess what else the unsaved world thinks about Christians? They think we're hypocrites and they think we're absolutely judgmental. And that is not a great testimony. And if there's any truth of it in my life, I need to see it and turn from that and have God deal with it. If there's any truth of that in your life, yes, people will believe whatever they want to believe, but I do have power and ability to make sure that I am not living in a way that anybody could accuse me of sitting in my own self-righteousness and judging the very world that Jesus came and dead died for. The same broken worlds. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you've encountered my love, then you ought to love. So Matthew 22, we all know it. Pharisee, one of the religious dudes, is like, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he asks this question knowing what Jesus is gonna answer. Because there's a second question coming, which is where they think they're gonna catch Jesus, which is then how do we really love God? What does that really look like? So he asks the first question and Jesus answers. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your minds. Exactly like the Pharisee thought he would answer. And before the second question comes, Jesus knows his heart and answers the second question because he's a master. He says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all of God's law, everything the prophets spoke about, everything hangs on these two things, love for God and love for people. And what Jesus is saying emphatically is he's saying, if you want to know the evidence that somebody loves God, it will be evidenced in the fact that they love people. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, don't claim the first without doing the second. Don't claim to be a a rabid follower of Christ in love with him if you don't love the world around you. If you love God, we will love the world. Love for God is best demonstrated and authenticated by how? By loving our neighbor. Love for God is manifested in love for people. He says, this is how we know that you're in love. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, it's proved by how much you pray. 
Though prayer is good. He, he doesn't say it's proved by your faithfulness and consistency to tithe, although that's good and we should do that. He, he doesn't talk about church attendance. He doesn't talk about how much we read the Bible or how devoted we are to the Bible. He doesn't even talk about how much we worship God. It's all measured by how we love people. Because here's the kicker. There are people who can pray and people who can tithe and people who can show up to a building in a life group, people who can read their Bible, people who can even sing songs. And, 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 if, and if all of that is done for love for God, which it should be, the Bible says if all of that is done in love for God, it will be proved out by love for people. Therefore, if I worship God with abandon, but I am mean-spirited to people, guess what? I have not connected to the love of God. And whoa, we don't want to hear that because we're like, wait a second, you're disrupting my apple cart. I don't like this. Well, this is the Bible. This is John, the beloved, the lighthearted version of a Christian, right? Just laying it down. He's like, no, it is all about love. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love one another. And we might say it's easy to love God, but not easy to love people. But Jesus is like, you can't separate the two. If you're good at one, you'll be good at the other. The meanest, most arrogant people in Jesus' day were the people that did all the religious duties that were actually not living in sin's practice and patterns but they had sin in their heart that they couldn't see. They had a lack of love, a lack of mercy. They had judgment. They had arrogance. They had pride. And they looked their nose down at the broken. How could I look my nose down at a broken world around me that doesn't think like me or act like me or talk like me when that's the very reason that Jesus came? He came to save them. We are not to first and foremost debate the world about issues of morality. That is not the first thing that we are called to do. The first thing we are called to do is not just have some moral debate about some issue. That's not our first and foremost place. Our first thing is to love them, is to meet them where they're at, is to show value to them. And when we do that, those conversations will open. When all that other stuff will happen. But, but listen, we can, if we're not careful, get really self-righteous about who we are and look our, our nose down at, at a broken, fallen world. And yet Jesus was marked as a friend of sinners. So they called him. It was a derogatory term, they thought. He's a friend of sinners. He hangs out with drunkards. He hangs out with prostitutes. He goes to parties. He goes to places that, that somebody like him shouldn't go. Jesus came for the broken. And guess what? The broken world loved him. They loved him. Just a reminder. The world we're trying to reach doesn't think like we think. Nor should they. They do not have the life and the hope of Jesus. We should not expect of them what we would expect from ourselves. We should expect that we would be like Jesus was to us. And Jesus came and met me in my mess and loved me in my mess and showed me his compassion. And then he began to deal with my hearts. And we step into someone else's world and, and we live like Jesus and we show them and we evidence the love of God by loving them. But there's something inside that just feels like, well, I need, to, I need to tell them they're living wrong. I need to tell them, like, that's a big issue in our day. 
There are laws trying to be passed about that right now. I need to let them know that's, that's wrong. No, you first need to love them. Jesus didn't lead with anything but love. For God so loved the world, he stepped out of heaven and came into the earth. That was the motivator. That was the strength. That was the power. No one did it better. No one walked in truth better than Jesus. Nobody. Nobody was better at it. So if I'm going to model my life, I should model my life after Jesus. And this is what John is saying. He's saying, man, don't live like you used to live. And one of those manifestations is you need to love and live differently. Verse 16, we're almost done. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid his life down for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and for our sisters. This is how we know because we kind of want to get subjective with it, right? Well, I mean, what, really what is love? Oh, here's what I mean. What I mean is I want you to love like Jesus loved as he gave his life for other people. Love is serving. Love is giving. Love is, he goes on. If anyone has material possessions, you have stuff and you see someone else in need, but you have no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? When you've got means to, to tangibly help someone, when you could reach out and babysit uh, some single mom's three kids so she could go out and get a pedicure that you paid for, that's a great expression of tangible love. Where you would sit with somebody and have a conversation or many conversations late at night about their hurt and their brokenness and you just sit and listen for like 20 hours of time before you ever try and offer a, a, a solution. You just hug them and you cry with them and you listen to them, right? That's when the gospel opens up. That's when somebody says, listen, there's something distinctly different about you. What is it? What is it? God's not in a hurry with people. He knows exactly the timing to get a hold of a heart. Dear children, he goes on, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. He's saying words are cheap. It's easy to say, I love you. Love you, man. If you love me, like, then, then meet me in my world. Then help me out. Do something. Show me. Like, what's the expression of that? I remember street preaching when I, at the age of 19 to this kid on the streets. And uh, I was telling him about the love of God. And I was wearing my favorite, like, button-up jean, long sleeve shirt. Like the original, the OG, not the ones they make now, but the old school jean shirt, the original. I remember having that on. And he looked at me and he said, if God loves me, then give me your shirt. So I unbuttoned that shirt and I handed it to him. And I'm not kidding you, this street kid looks at me with tears in his eyes. This is like the most basic, like it's a shirt. But for this kid, that spoke to him. Something came out of him. A kid who had never been given stuff. A kid, you know what I mean? And that little, tiny, tangible, here's my shirt, opened up this beautiful conversation. And this beautiful place where I was able to pray for that young man over the next couple days to receive Christ in his heart. It's like the world is saying, if you love me, then show me. Show me, church. Show me. And you try and love them, and what do they do? They puff up, and they want to throw all their bad junk at you. And there's a test. The test is this. Are you going to love me, or are you going to judge me? Are you going to judge me like everybody else, or are you going to love me? And they, they will throw their best to push us away. 
And that's why we continue to text and continue to reach out and continue to show up and continue to serve them and continue to be there for them. And we wear them down in love. It's our job, it's our duty, is to love God and walk in his ways and to love the world. Let's just read our last few verses and we'll pray. This is how we know we belong to the truth, verse 19, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and we do what pleases him. And this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. This is our brand. This is our snapshot. Sometimes not even in descriptive words, they just look and they're like, those are the people that love extravagantly. Those are the people that live differently. This is what John's saying. And this is the invitation. No matter how long you and I have been serving Jesus, the invitation is how well am I doing at practicing righteousness and walking in God's ways, at breaking sin's power, at understanding that that power has been broken and I just have to, I get to reinforce that every single day. Jesus did all the work. He did all the effort. He's like, enter into this place of freedom where you can walk in the liberty that I have for you. And when you do that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you to take the love that you have experienced in me and I just, I just want you to give that away to the world around you. From the place of love, everything else happens. Yes, there are conversations. Yes, there are hard conversations. Yes, there is a place where we need to speak the truth to people. But early on in ministry, I remember somebody telling me, said, you, be, you better earn the right to speak into somebody's life. And one of the ways that we earn that right is we listen to their story and we hear their pain. And maybe we don't respond at first. We just go, that's tough, but I'm here for you. And as their hearts open, relationally, the gospel comes alive in people's hearts. We are in a season of billions, the billion soul harvest. It's been prophesied for the last 20 years, a harvest of, of more than a billion souls coming into the kingdom of God. And they will come to know him through my life and through your life and your life and every life online as we do exactly what we learned this morning. The world is saying, come on, show me. Show me a different way to live. Show me a message that can free me. Show me something so good that I'm willing to say yes. Would you close your eyes with me this morning? If you're here and you have not said yes to Jesus, you've not put your faith and your trust in him, you are living under the death sting of sin. You are carrying shame, guilt, condemnation, heaviness. You struggle with addiction, uh, a brokenness, broken identity, relationships that are messed up. You're walking in all of that stuff. And Jesus says, I came into the earth to meet you right where you're at, to forgive you for your sin and to cause you to become 
a child of mine by faith. By, by putting your faith and your trust in me, you can become born again. You can be born of God. You can have my life inside of you. You can have your sins washed and forgiven. You can step into who I've called you to be. If you are in that spot this morning and it's your day to say yes to Jesus, I want you to be bold in the presence of God right now and just lift up your hand and say, you know what, pastor, that's me. That's me this morning. I need to say yes to him. I want that weight lifted off of my life. I want that change to come into me. Thank you. Come on, thank you so much for just being bold. This is not about anybody else in the room right now, but this is about you. You saying yes. You saying I've been running. You saying it's time. You saying, God, I've tried it all and I can't live that way anymore. I want to say yes. And I want to lead us this morning like we do every week at our church in a prayer of confession. And I want to give you some words and I want to pray them out and I want you to repeat after me. And as a church, we're going to pray with you together as you make this prayer of confession. But I want you to take what's stirring in your heart and your faith and I want you to, I want you to, to take, take that faith and attach it to these words so these words become your own. And I want you to pray with me. So let's pray together as a church. Jesus, I need you. And right now in this moment, I put my faith and my trust in you. And I confess that I am a sinner in need of your grace. And I ask right now that you would come into my life, that you would be my God, that you would forgive me for my sin. I turn from my sin and I ask that you would heal me and you would restore me and that I would become your child, that I would be born of God, that I would have your life and I would have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on. Stand to your feet with me if you would. Come on. We are the children of God. And about four or five people just became children of God. As we worship one last song, come on, let's worship like we are those who have been born of God. Amen.